Well, this uh, morning, our passage is all about sin. Very popular subject. You came here to hear about sin, right? And uh, we're going to see a couple of things here about sin. We're going to see what, it, what is it? What is sin? Um, what is the power of sin? And also, what's the only cure for our sin? All right, so what is sin? We see this in our passage. What is the power of sin? What power does sin have over your life? And what is the only cure? So let's set up some of the context here. So you might be saying, oh, look, they were leaning down and they were reclining and, and Peter was motioning over to John, the, the disciple whom uh, Christ loved. And so let's kind of set the stage a little bit, uh, if, if you allow me. And so uh, during this time, we kind of have a, uh, this is kind of the Lord's Supper right here in John 13. And you got to get out of your head uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting because that's not what this looked like you know the, the, when they all kind of look angelic and everyone just kind of looking up in the air and, and all seated at a or sat at a table where no one was on this side of the table for some reason they were all on one side of the table and uh, that is not that's not what's going on here uh, during this feast they were reclined at table they were reclined at the table. And last week, if you're with us, you, we talked about uh, feet washing. And the reason why Jesus got up and washed all their feet is because whenever they came into this place, their feet were dirty. And, and what was customary during this time is they would have leaned their head all the way down. They would have pillows around the table. They would have leaned probably on their right side. And their feet would have been opposite side of the table so that it'd be the furthest away from the food so they didn't have to smell their feet. Now, Jesus just washed their feet, so their feet were probably a little bit nicer than usual. But this is how they would have been positioned. They were reclining at table. Their heads would have been at a very short table. At a very short table, they would have been leaning down and kind of looking all at one another. And so this was a very relaxed, this was a very relaxed setting. And they were all very up. Uh, like very close 12 of them they were probably side by side it says here even in this passage that John leaned up against him while they were laying down to ask him a question so you kind of have this in your mind you have the setting in your mind that they were all laying down their feet were opposite the table and they were about to eat they were about to eat the feast and right here in verse 21, it says, while they're all reclined, all sitting together, all, all ready to go, he's given a little speech, and then he says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, one of you, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus is tore up about this. You might be saying, well, Cody, that's obvious. If, it, if you knew and you could look into someone's heart, and you could see the depths of people's betrayal and sin, you would be tore up too. But no, this is really, this is really significant. This is really significant because Jesus knows all things, and yet he, he is troubled in his spirit. And what does this teach us about sin? What does this teach us about sin? Well, it, we have uh, family uh, worship this morning. Hello, kids. Uh, some of y'all had no uh, know uh, that we are going through catechisms in Redeemer Kids during this time uh, through our 10-year-old uh, kind of age group. And one of the catechisms that we, uh, that we teach here is what is sin? What is sin? This is question 16. And sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created. All right, that's part of the catechism here in uh, the, the question, what is sin? Sin is rejecting 
or ignoring God in the world that he created. Why bring this up? Because you notice the relational component to sin. What is sin? Sin is relational. Sin is relational. See, we like to think that sin is just breaking a commandment. There's a moral code up here, and there's a scoreboard up in heaven. The scoreboard up in heaven is keeping up, keeping up with all the the codes or the laws that you have broken. And so whenever we think about our sin, we think about, oh, I sinned again, and I just got another check mark in the the L column of my sin. I, I, I hit another tally of sins that I've committed. And so we have, sec- we have separated our mind from that our sin is against someone to our sin is actually just against a code, a code of conduct. And that is not how the Bible sets up what sin is. Sin is betrayal. Sin is betrayal against the God that made us. And so if you think in, in this room, it's like, oh, I just have a couple of pet sins that God really kind of, he washed away with his blood. He doesn't really care about these things. Well, how dare we say that God doesn't care about some of our tiny sins? I'll just lie a little bit about this thing over here. Uh-oh. Uh, how arrogant would it be for us as confessional Christians to say God doesn't really care about our sin? He died for it. Of course he cares for it. Of course he cares about it. And the, the main thing that we need to understand is because our sin is against him. Our sin is ultimately against him. Sin is betrayal. It's betrayal against God Almighty. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine there was a, um, a teenage mom who had a son, and she sacrificed everything for the son. She sacrificed everything. She worked two jobs. She worked jobs that she didn't enjoy, didn't like. She laid down her life for the son. She made sure that he, he got the best education possible, a, a private Christian education at the best school, at the best school in town. She, she, she worked two jobs to do this. She made sure that he, had got, that he had godly mentors, that he was always, always at the church, even though she was exhausted and tired, working 100 hours a week. And then imagine that son goes on to, to, to the best university in, uh, best university in the state and got the best education that he could possibly get, and she's still working for him. She's taking out loans. She's taking out debt. She's doing everything she can for the flourishing of this son. Then imagine the son gets his gradu- uh, graduates with his MBA somewhere, the most pre- prestigious school you can think of, and then never calls his mom again. Doesn't, doesn't ever call her. Maybe, maybe uh, gives her a call on Christmas. Oh, uh, Merry Christmas, Mom. Yeah. Yeah, heard it. Cool. What would you say if, what do you say to this guy who never called his mom except on maybe your birthday and maybe Christmas, never went to go visit, never, never really cared about who, you're like, man, good job, dude. You made it with your MBA. No. You look at him and you'd be like, get, get your rear home and go love your mom. She sacrificed everything for you, dude. Like, what, are you, like, what, what do you think? Who do you think you are? Uh, you, you think you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps? No, you owe everything to this woman who has given you everything and who has sacrificed so much just for your flourishing. What, right? We, we're, outra- we're outraged in our culture at that type of person. That type of person. But now I say, imagine, imagine God as the relational God, the relational God in the Bible, who you and I owe everything to. You say, no, I, I'm a good person. I pulled myself up by my, my bootstraps. I, I, I read the Bible and I understood it and I applied it appro- appropriately. Listen, you didn't pick your gifts or your talents. 
You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose what class you were born into. You didn't choose what language you speak, your parents spoke and taught you. You didn't choose what continent you were born on. You did not choose what time period you are born. You owe everything to God. You owe everything to God. You are who you are by the grace of God alone. Therefore, therefore, the sin that you and I commit is deeply personal. It's against Him. Him. This, this is our God. He's the God who we owe everything to. And true faith in the gospel, true faith in the gospel, you know what it does? It applies the relational nature the relational aspect of our life to him. What is your connection to God? Is it religiously mechanical or is it relational? Is it mechanical? What do I mean, what do I mean by that? Uh, is your understanding of the gospel is like, oh, whenever I sin, well, I know I'm forgiven. Like, I'm, I'm forgiven. Uh, the, the cross, uh, the resurrection, all that stuff. And so like, dude, get off my back. I know I'm forgiven. Don't you know the gospel? Don't you believe it? Now leave me alone. I sin, yes, but Jesus forgave me for my sins. Who, who cares? Get, get off my back. Get off my back. See, that's a mechanical, that's a mechanical relationship to God. That's saying, well, I've crossed my the, uh, theological T's and dotted my theological I's. Uh, I, I've memorized a couple of religious mantras whenever things go, go poorly, and therefore, therefore I, I don't really think about my relationship to, to God so much. Do you think of God, do you think of your salvation, Christian, confessional Christian, look at me. Do you think of your salvation the same way that you think of your high school diploma? He's like, man, I'm glad I, glad I got that. Glad I did that. That, that. It happened somewhere in the past, and I know, I know that uh, I did it. Don't know where it is, but somehow it's affected and helped me in the future. It helps me now, but I really have no relationship to my high school diploma whatsoever. But I'm glad, glad I did it back, back then. Is that how you think of salvation? Oh, no, no, I did that. Uh, been there, done that. Prayed the prayer, man. Like, I, I prayed back in the day. Uh, I, got, I got my salvation. I got my, my heaven card stamped. I got my heaven card stamped, and therefore, because it happened back then, like, I'm, I'm good. I know it affects me uh, somehow. I, I don't really think about it that much. Is that, is that your relationship to Christianity? Is it the same as the high school diploma? Because, listen, God is not like this. The God of the Bible is deeply relational. And whenever Jesus says that he was deeply troubled, that someone is about to betray him, this shows us and reveals to us why it's deeply relational. Sin is betrayal. Sin is betrayal against a holy God. You know how God talks about, how does God talk about uh, his relationship to us? What, what is the analogy that the Bible uses? Christ says that the church, a Christian, is his bride. That, that's the deepest relationship that we have. That's the most intimate relationship that we have here on earth. And that's the analogy that God uses between us and him. That's the analogy that God uses. And so that means, listen, listen, my wife, my wife and I, whenever she thinks of something, whenever she wants something, my desire is to try to get her that thing. We go through life together. We make a family together. We build up our morals and values and the things that, we're, uh, things that are really important to us together. We are side by side in this life. We are arm in arm. You cannot se separate anything that me and Stephanie McMurray d does in this life. We do things together. We're arm in arm. And that's how Jesus speaks about Christians. 
That's how the Lord is speaking about you. You are his bride. So therefore, are, are, are you thinking of him that way? Are you walking arm in arm with him? Are you walking side by side with him? In your time management, do you do everything that you want to do? Or are you connecting, are you revolving your life, centering your life on saying, what does God want from me today? What does the Lord want from me today? Is, is that how you're processing through things? You're just like, Cody, I'm busy. I got work, man. I got work, and then I got to go home, and I got to eat, and then I got to think about something to do with the yard. I was like, no, listen, listen, if you're side by side, arm in arm with the Lord, when, when during your day are you processing this is when we make decisions together. And so you, if you've been to church for a long time, you're just like, oh man, all they do is tell me to read my Bible, pray, fellowship, go to church, like all this stuff. Like this isn't just like a, a, a set of things that we say earn you salvation. No, these things are connecting you with the living God in relationship. They're connecting you. And so the, 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 these are like wires that connect you to the power source, which is God and God alone. Do you, do you process life this way? The, do you process life through a relationship with God? Or do you process life mechanically and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I do these things because I'm a Christian. And then you say, well, what has Jesus taught you recently? And he's like, what? sometimes I ask that question, and people are like, you mean what, I've, what have I been learning at church? It's like, maybe, maybe. But my question still stands, what is the Lord teaching you, Redeemer? Redeemer Church, right now, in your relationship with him, what has he been teaching you lately? What sin is he calling to the floor and saying, let's get rid of this, we don't need this anymore? How, how are you processing through relationship with God? Because sin, sin is betrayal against him. Because he's a relational God, sin is ultimately against him and him alone. We read that in our call, call to worship this morning. Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. Stephanie affects me. My wife affects me. My spouse affects me. Therefore, my question to you, is the Lord, is your relationship with the Lord affecting you? Not Sunday, whenever you sacrifice coming here, but every day, every moment of every day, down to your eating and drinking, are you operating for the glory of the Lord? Because this is what it calls us to. So what the word is calling us to, sin is, is against a relational God. Sin is betrayal. It's betrayal. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. All the way back in the book of Genesis, uh, we get a tiny glimpse of this. In Genesis chapter 6, uh, everything's going down really, really fast. It says the thoughts of mankind were evil continually. This is before the flood. And what God does is he says something very, very interesting. It says that God regretted making mankind, which brings us to an interesting theological question. How could God, who knows everything, First uh, John 3.20 says, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Why? Because he knows everything. So whenever God knows everything, how can he regret something that he knows is going to happen? That's a really important theological question. Uh, and we've, we've been binary on this, uh, on this uh, 
theological question in two ways. One of the ways that we we're really binary is like, well, obviously God doesn't know everything, or he wouldn't have been sad that this thing happened whenever it happened because it caught him by surprise. This caught him by surprise, and he was like, man, I just regret this. That's one way of looking at it. But that would be, that would contradict other parts of the Bible to where God actually knows everything that's going to take place. And because God knows everything that's going to take place, what is this actually teaching us? It's teaching us that God is relational. Yes, he's all-powerful. Yes, he's all-knowing. Yes, he's omniscient. Yes, he knows everything that's going on, but it's showing us how God has knit his heart together with humanity. God has bound up his happiness with your happiness. Christian, I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say that God has voluntarily bound up his happiness with your happiness. That's how God can regret. That's how God can be, uh, can, can look at what Judas is about to do and say, I am grieved at this. Why? Because he has voluntarily chosen to bound his heart with our hearts. The God, the maker of everything that spoke everything into existence with the breath of his mouth says that I care about what's going on in Bradley's heart. I care about what's going on in John Mark's heart. I care about what's going on in Andy's heart. I care about what's going on in Stephanie's heart and Amanda's heart. I care. I care. This is our God who knows everything and then says, my heart is yearning for you. Do you see our God as a relational God? Do you process with him this way? Do you know what this means about sin? Sin is not just breaking God's law. When you sin, it breaks his heart. Sin breaks the heart of God. In the same way, can you imagine how the heart of that single mother who put, sacrificed everything for her son, her heart is broken. I did everything I possibly could for him. Of course her heart is broken. God is the exact same way, but infinitely more. Infinitely more. So what is sin? Sin is betrayal. It's betrayal against our relational God who loves us and gave himself up for us. So that's the first thing we see today. What's the second thing we see? Let's look at the case study of Judas. All right? And you're like, well, we really don't have to study about Judas. We know he's, uh, he's a dirty rat. He's a betrayer. Uh, I, I don't like him. You know, like you, you can even see it in how the New Testament writers talk about him. Anytime they were like, and here's the 12 disciples. And by the way, Judas was going to betray him. Exclamation point, exclamation point. You know, they, they're telegraphing. They're telegraphing all, all throughout the Gospels. But what's interesting about that is they don't do that in this scenario. In this scenario, they have no idea what's about to happen. They have no idea what's about to, to happen. Look at verse 30. Look how verse 30 ends. It says, and he went out, and it was night. And this is an amazing literary tool. You think John's just telling him, hey, whenever he went out, it was night? No. There is a contrast between, there's a contrast all throughout, all throughout the Gospel of John. It, you see it all the way from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was the light of the world. In verse 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. He is contrasting Jesus as light, and then Jesus coming to extinguish the dark. And whenever Judas left, whenever Judas left right here, it says, and it was night. It was night. Just spiritual darkness from here on out. Just spiritual darkness from the life, from the life of, of, um, of Judas. 
So what are some of the things that we see here about the overall power and nature of sin? The first thing we see is, through the life of Judas is that sin has the power to remain. Sin has the power to crouch in the, uh, the dark shadows of your heart and remain there for a very, very long time. Have you seen that movie, Wally? <laughs> Have you seen the movie, Wally? Uh, who is Wally's friend on earth? He has one friend. The cockroach. Thank you. Thank you. I heard it up here too. Good job, Golson kids. All right. Uh, the cockroach was his friend. One time, Wally even ran over the cockroach. And, and what happened to the cockroach? Bing! It popped right back up and was alive, okay? Uh, and, and what's the joke there? The joke there is that after the nuclear holocaust and the, the, you know, the earth is completely in, inhabitable and this dystopia vision of Disney through the movie Wally, uh, the only thing that actually has life, no plant life, just sand, but the cockroaches are still there. The cockroaches are still there. And let me, let me kind of correlate that with the sin in Judas's heart. Because listen, Judas, Judas was one of the 12 disciples. Judas was one of the best of them. Judas was the guy that they trusted with the money back. All right? Judas was the guy that was always volunteer to do things. You even see the confusion here in verse 29. It says, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus, they thought that Jesus was telling him, buy whatever you need for the feast, or he should go give something to the poor. Judas was the guy that they trusted with their benevolence fund. Hey, Judas was always the guy going and taking care of the poor out of the band of the 12 disciples. So Jesus, or Judas had some really high responsibility. And think about this. Think about this. Judas probably had the best church experience in the history of history. The best church walked around with Christ the Messiah for three years, who he uh, overshadowed him, flooded him with his love. He had the best fellowship that ever existed. He had the best Bible teacher, the best mentor, the best counselor that ever existed in the history of the world. For three years, Judas was under the tutelage of, G of Jesus, the Messiah. And listen, they, they were confused about what's going on. Jesus even says, hey, it's going to be him, and they're still confused. This is not because they're dumb. This is not because—sometimes I, I read it that way. I was like, the 12 disciples were just buffoons, especially Peter. They're all buffoons. But no, no, what this reveals in the confusion surrounding this, this is they were just like, I don't— get what you're saying, Jesus. How are we going to betray you? We had opportunities to betray you. You had a lot of other disciples, and they all fell away. We stayed. We're the 12. There was a time that 20,000 people were following you, Jesus, and then there was a time that 500 people were following you, Jesus, and then you kept on whittling it down, and Judas was one of the 12. Whenever Judas went out and cast out demons— Remember that? Remember that whole um, scenario that's not in the Gospel of John, but Luke and Matthew and Mark talk about it? Listen, there's no indication that Judas's demon never came out. And you're like, <laughs> there's no indication that Judas wasn't good at ministry. There's no indication that whenever P Judas told people about Jesus, that people weren't coming to Christ and obeying him and fall falling at his feet. G uh, Judas was most likely, by all metrics and understandings of who he is, 
outside of the prejudice of the New Testament writers, that Judas wasn't one of the best disciples on the outside. On the outside. And so it doesn't matter how good your experience is at church. It doesn't matter who your mentor is, who your pastor is, uh, you know, who your counselor is. Sin has the power to remain in your heart. It is powerful. And as the, the cockroach of Judas's sin did not die, even with all that he experienced with Jesus. Sin has the power to remain. What's another thing we see here? Sin has the power to hide. Your sin has the power to hide. Look at verse uh, 21. He says, he says that you will betray me. And again, they had no idea that it was him. No idea that it was him. In fact, this is what's interesting. What's interesting is uh, Peter motioned to John, who most likely was right next to Jesus. When, John, when someone's right next to Jesus, the, the host of the feast, guess what? You think they have honor or dishonor? Honor. That's why John is called the disciple whom they loved. And it doesn't say whenever Jesus got up, got up to give the little morsel of bread. It doesn't say that he got up. It says that he just handed it to the person. So that means that he was potentially on the other side of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Jesus was Judas was potentially at the left hand of Jesus, the place of honor for the feast. And so that's one of the reasons why they had no idea that it was Judas. How could Judas, the best of us, the one that we trust with our money, the one that cares for the poor more than anyone else out of the 12 disciples, be the one that's going to betray? It doesn't make any sense. He sat, his, he sat um, at the right hand. He sat at the place of honor. In, in, in this culture, whenever the host of the feast offers a piece of bread at the beginning of a feast to someone that bestowed love, devotion, honor to the person, and then he says, this is who's going to betray me, and they're like, it doesn't make any sense. You're, what you're doing is you're honoring him. They couldn't, they couldn't see past all the, cultural, uh, all, all the cultural generations that said, oh, Judas is the best of us. Judas cares the, the, the best. But all that did is it just allowed Judas to hide. Listen to me. Sometimes, sometimes we can hide our sin by doing good. Sometimes you can hide your sin by doing things that you think pleases God. Say, I don't have to deal with that right now because I'm doing this over here. Sometimes, sometimes your goodness is actually a mask to reveal a dead, cold heart. Sin hides, and oftentimes it hides behind our damnable good works. Oftentimes our sin hides behind our good works, church. So we, God doesn't care about the exterior. He cares about the interior. He cares about the heart. And Judas didn't give it to him, even though he might have been the best of them. Might have been the best. Sin hides. Sin has the power to remain. And sin also grows. Sin grows. In chapter 13, verse 2, it says this. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, to betray him. And then in verse 27, he gives him the bread. 
he gives him the bread and says, and after he took the morsel, Satan entered into him. So Satan put it into his heart, hey, you should do this. And then uh, 25 verses later, Satan entered into him right here. You know what that's called? Sin, sinful progression. Sinful progression. Sin grows. Sin grows. In Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, you remember uh, this story? God, in his grace, comes down to Cain and says, Cain, why are you so angry at your brother? Sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. Master it. Sin is like a roaring lion hiding in the shadows, ready to pounce on you, and you have to master it. So God comes and counsels Cain. And then what happens? Sinful progression. And he ends up murdering his brother Abel. Sin grows. Sin grows. Sin is like a predatory animal ready to devour you. Now, I've shared this story one time to illustrate this point. But that was a long time ago. We weren't even meeting here. And if you heard it back then, just indulge the the guest next to you, okay? Uh, uh, I don't know if this story is true, but it's really impactful. There was a story that in Texas A&M in the early 2000s, there was a girl who had a pet boa constrictor. And she loved this pet boa constrictor. That was kind of her thing, all right? And she'd feed it rats and gerbils and all this stuff. She loved this snake so much that she began to start sleeping with it in her bed, all right? Don't recommend it, but this is how the story goes. But she, something happened to the snake while it was sleeping. Um, she noticed over the, the course of several weeks that the snake was no longer eating the snake, the, the, like the gerbils and the, the mice and all that stuff. It was starving itself. So obviously, what do you do when you have a pet snake? I have no idea, but this is what she does. She goes to the vet. She goes to the vet and says, hey, something's, uh, something's uh, not right with my snake. He's like, okay, well, has anything changed? And she didn't want to really say anything about... Uh, the sleeping with the snake thing, like she wanted to keep that between her and herself. And so she's like, no, nothing's really, nothing's really going on. Just, it's not eating. He's like, okay, let's, let's wait a couple of days. And if it's not eating, bring it back. And uh, that's what she did. Again, keeping the snake sleeping situation to herself. And then eventually the vet says, man, I cannot find anything wrong with the snake. Are you sure there's nothing weird that's going on? Is there nothing weird going on with you and the snake? And she said, uh, well, I mean, there's one thing. I mean, I'm sleeping with it, and it likes to lay on me and kind of, you know, stretch out on me. It's really sweet. I love, I love the snake. She goes, whoa. The, the vet goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're sleeping with the snake, and it's stretching out its body across your body? He goes, well, yeah, yeah, we love each other. He's like, no, that's not what's happening. The snake does not love you. It's starving itself because... It's planning for a big meal, and it's laying across your body because it's measuring if it can eat you or not. So get it out of your bed. That's what sin is like. It doesn't want to cohabitate with us. It's waiting for the chance to devour us. It's waiting for a chance to destroy us. And wants to dominate us. And this is what happens when you and I sin. And you know this. I'm just going to put words to it. Every time you do a sin, what you're doing is you're eliminating your ability to resist that sin in the future. 
Um, WGT Shedd with two Ds. He wrote um, multiple systematic theology books. And uh, he has a, uh, one book about uh, the lectures to the natural man and lectures to the spiritual man. Really, really good book. Uh, it's free on Amazon if you want it. But uh, he says that sin is the suicidal action of the will against itself. Meaning every time you sin, it destroys your ability to resist that sin in the future and makes it easier for you to over and over repeat those sins. And so uh, I, I, had a, I went to a birthday party this weekend. It's my grandmother's 85th birthday. And we had all these different cakes. We had cookies, we had cakes, we had cake balls. And I said to myself, you know what? I don't need to eat this cake. I don't need to eat this cake. But I, what, I said, I'm just going to eat. I'm just going to have a bite. I'm just going to have one bite, okay? And that's, that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to eat a bite. And I, I took a bite of that cake ball. And then three cake balls later, um, I m messed up my entire plan to not have that, this many sweets. You know what I should have done? I should have never took one bite. should have never took the first bite. It's much easier to resist whenever you never take the first bite than whenever you just say, I'm just going to do this once. We, we're not that powerful, folks. You are a creature of the dirt. I'm a creature of the dirt riddled with the sin that has infected our whole body. Cut it off at the head. Don't think that you're powerful enough to repent at will. Sin will take you to places you don't want to go. You must destroy it. It doesn't want to cohabitate with you. It wants to destroy you. It's crouching around like a roaring lion. So what's the antidote? How do we do this? It's one thing to just say, well, the pastor said don't do it. <laughs> And so therefore, I guess I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to listen to him. Uh, for a couple of seconds, that might work. But it won't give you the power, the power to uh, continue to repent over and over and over again. If you see on your little handout, it's, uh, it, uh, this is a very common thing that has circ circulated around Redeemer, which is, talks about the true essence of what repentance is. True repentance is confession and action at the exact same time. It's not just confession. It's not just action. It's both. Biblical repentance from your sin means it's communal in nature. If you want to repent, you cannot repent outside of the community of faith. The Bible has not designed it that way. God has not designed it that way. Confession, confession to a brother or sister and then action leads to real repentance. See, there's multiple people in this room. Some of us like to confess a lot, but we have no willpower to actually change anything or no desire to do that. We just like to, to talk about how we're going to tr transform and change. Most of us probably in this room, knowing the, uh, the demographics and how, um, how you're wired, uh, is prob probably fall in this... Um, X negative Y quadrant. I don't know if some math teacher might have to help me out with this, uh, which is I want to repent. I want to take the actions to repent, but I don't want to tell anyone what I'm doing. So you have actions, but you want to conceal. You see, you're a fixer. I'll fix it myself. I don't need the people of God. I don't need the people of God to, to get over my sin. And the Bible says, no, no. The way that God has provided is the only way to repentance. So what's the medicine? What's the medicine? Repentance. Repentance towards what? Repentance towards Christ. Look at how Jesus treats Judas right here. 
I mentioned it earlier, but whenever he gives him the morsel, this was confusing. Why? Because he was bestowing honor on Judas, the person sitting right near him. He was bestowing honor. He was bestowing love. He was saying, you are mine. I cherish you. And he was handing it over there to him. And you know what he was doing? This was a blast of God's undying love into Judas's cold, dead heart. And he hated it because he immediately took it and went out to betray him. He hated it. Do you hate the grace of God? Or do you receive it with joy? You say, Cody, of course I don't hate the grace of God. I want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell. Uh, no, listen, listen. Are you constantly trying to justify your existence by saying, Jesus plus my tithe? Jesus plus my service to the church. Jesus plus my concern for the poor. Jesus plus my voting habits. Jesus plus who I hang out with and, and sacrifice for. Because that is a hatred of the grace of God. By saying, I'm a good person because of Jesus plus this thing over here. Christ and Christ alone is your only hope in this life. Christ and Christ alone. Anything that you are adding in addition to the grace of the cross of Jesus to where he, he took on your sin and your shame, he cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, is an addition to the cross and says you don't actually believe it. You don't actually believe it. You want to be good like Judas who was cool with being the, place, being the place of honor, caring for the poor, and all of that. Do you receive, do you receive the grace of Jesus? Have you received the grace of Jesus? Because this is what's remarkable about this. Jesus looks at Judas and says, I see you all the way. I know the sin that is in your heart, and I still love you. Everyone of you in this room that is a believer in Jesus has had this same encounter with the Lord to where you recognize that Jesus is looking at your sin and say, I see it all the way down to the bottom, and yet I still want you. And how do you respond? Redeemer, how are you going to respond today? whether for the first time or for the millionth time, whenever you look at the grace of Jesus saying, I know the depths of your depravity. I know the depths of your sin. I know that you have betrayed me over and over and over again, but I don't care. I want you. I love you. I treasure you. I delight in you. My heart is bound to your heart. What do you say? What do you say? See, this is the gospel. And Judas, what he said was no. No. I want to be on the right side of history. I want to be, I, I want, I'm tired of you, Jesus, saying that these people are bad over there and those, that there's only one way. I'm tired of your exclusivity, Christ. I'm going my own way. Or I'm going to tailor you into my own form or fashion. Listen, there's only one way. And it's Christ and Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It equals everything. This is the gospel. God is good, and he's not just good in his love, because that's what we see here, right? God's overwhelming goodness and his love to Judas, who's about to go betray him. But he's also good in his justice. He's also good in his justice by saying, Judas, Judas, come to me and I will love you 
Come to me and I will love you. But if not, you start this ball rolling and I will go die for all those that will believe in me. You go betray me and I will go die for them so that they, whenever they have an encounter with my love, will say, yes, I receive it. Have you received it? Do you love this God? Do you think of him as a he or, or just a, a ruler in the sky that you have no part except maybe subscribing to some time that you believe in him. Christianity is relational. Christianity, according to, the, according to the Bible, your sin is betrayal in Christianity. Turn to him. Receive the, the laser beam of his love into your heart and say, Lord, you are mine and I am yours. Let's pray.